0: Hey there! Thanks for listening to the Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, live from Washington D.C. I, I had to stop myself; I almost said from our studios in Washington D.C. But our studios are now my kitchen table. I just have to be upfront about it. I'm Burke Allen, and the podcast is a service of our friends at Speaker Match, the world's largest virtual online speakers bureau. If you're a speaker or you're a meeting planner, you're probably trying to figure out exactly what to do. Uh, with this global pandemic situation speaker match is a wealth of resources for you so visit him online at speakermatch.com and boy have things changed in our world and that's why we brought in today uh, a gentleman who does business all over the world he's a consultant advisor and author david goldsmith david goldsmith.com thanks for being with us um, could you have imagined three months ago that you'd be where you are right now
1: <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me onto the uh, program.
0: I would actually say,
1: yes, I did. And the reason I know I felt this way is I've actually been in isolation for more or less five months. I've My life is, it has been in Asia and the United States. I got, a, got stuck in the middle. And so I've lived through Asia and I'm living through the United States. So the combination of both, I saw this coming and I was hoping that the uh, tactics that were used, the strategies employed, would end up putting us in a position where right now, everybody I, all my friends in Hong Kong, are out. They're going to
0: the beach. They're going out to clubs. They're doing some of their normal life. You know, and we should probably mention that David does business internationally and uh, is actually calling from a Hong Kong number. Although you're back in the states, so. Where were you uh, in the first part of the year when when all this uh, began to to shake loose for Wuhan? Uh, There was a combination of – it's a
1: longer story. I'll try to keep it very short. At the end of November, I had left Hong Kong, come back to the United States for the holidays, a little earlier than normal because things had slowed down due to a protest in the region. And in doing so, uh, I only went out of the house once on December 7th to fix some pipes in a rental that I have. And then my wife was flat on her back. She had spiking fever, dry cough. She said it is the worst she's ever felt in her entire life. Now, this is before we heard anything of COVID. Five days later, my eldest son, who was with us, he ended up being flat on his back. So the December in uh, upstate New York is cold. I don't have a lot of friends in the region, so I basically stayed in, and then everything was canceled. I was all set to travel all through Asia again, and everything was canceled across the region because of what was happening in the in China, or specifically Wuhan, not China, but Wuhan. And then, so I it was cold, stayed inside, didn't go out. Then I flew to February 12th, I flew to London to do some work, then I was in Dubai, and Because of lack of need, not because of any quarantining issues, lack of passengers, United Delta and American closed down their flights to Hong Kong, and I had to make a choice. Do I go back to my home in Hong Kong, or do I fly back to the States? So I did fly back to the States Took me 43 hours, and saw my father, who was starting to deteriorate for one day, and since then, I've been in my home. I have not left. So I've kind of been experiencing this ordeal, this challenge of COVID because of the paradigm shifting that I'm involved in for now five months. And it's been interesting. It's been interesting to watch.
0: Our guest of the Big Time Talker podcast, David Goldsmith, is an international business person, president and co-founder of the Goldsmith organization uh, with offices in New York and Hong Kong. It's a consulting firm that that really helps solve big challenges for executive clients. Uh, you guys work in nonprofits and commerce and governments with military all over the world. And, and you've got a pretty fascinating background. You've done some work with NASA. You were an instructor at New York University. Uh, your project Moon Hut uh, that you did uh, out in San Francisco with the folks at NASA is very interesting. We have some NASA clients as well. Um, and one of the reasons we were so excited to have you on the podcast today is you do bring – a global perspective that I think is lacking in, in lots of the discussion. And and of course, these things we're going to ask you about are, are your opinions uh, and your opinions alone, but, but let's start with one of those. And, and that is, with that global perspective, how do you feel the United States is doing in, in handling this crisis?
1: That is, I actually had to take a deep breath. In strategic planning, in, Any type of business work that you're involved in doesn't matter, profit, nonprofit, government, military education. There are some principles that have to be adhered to. Three of them that I often will share with individuals to start planning are. What's your perception of the future? The next one is what are the principles you live by? And the third is your uh, the closest real assessment to where you are at the moment. In the case of the decisions made in other countries, when it comes to, let's use Korea as an example. They tested very early on. Their approach was, let's get a handle on this, a large percentage of their population as compared to other countries. And they've mitigated the loss of life. The United States took a more of a laissez-faire. This is not real. We have more concerns about business. And they delayed making uh, the government, I put it on the government itself, made decisions that prolong the ability for the virus to spread. And when looking back and we hear an example, a phrase such as, we closed down the doors to China. Burke, let's put it this way. You have an enemy at your front door and you go and you bolt your front door. Would you then leave all your windows open, your garage open, And your sliding glass door in the back? That would be no. So you stopped China, but 276, I believe is the number. Don't quote me on that. Plane still left China for the United States. But you could fly from China to Korea, to Japan, leave out of Hong Kong, or leave out of any other place, and still come to the United States. And you also, like many of my friends who live in China or Hong Kong, they headed west, and they went to switzerland germany the uk and even on to the united states so there was in my opinion the handling of the entire coronavirus in the world was handled in a very haphazard way there was if you were to think about the unification of the world at a time when it needed it most we saw Nationalism prevail and nationalism over patriotism is a big difference. Nationalism, uh, patriotism is when you care about your country and you, you deliver your, what your content, who you are to the world. Nationalism uses those same concepts, thoughts, beliefs in a negative way as a means of controlling power. If you're a globalist, which is not exactly in the same context of words, a globalist is always looking at the world to see how it impacts their particular environment. So l- l- this is not, in my opinion, a-, a reset at all. If you were to do a comparison, take the Spanish flu, which was 1918 to 1920. Oh, by the way, happy anniversary for the Spanish flu. It's 100 huh. years. Huh. Okay. Uh, the Spanish flu impacted or infected one-third of the world's population, and about that time, it was 100, 1.5 billion people. So 500 million people were infected. Today, that would be the equivalent of about 2.5 billion people infected, and the death rate was 50 million. So if we use the same numbers, the same comparison, just this is not an accurate number, just a, a conceptualized, that would be 250. Million people on the globe being uh, dying, and yet I've tried. I've, got, I've rattled my brain. Where do we have any remnants of that? Three years later, people were hugging and kissing and traveling and doing all the things that we do. We don't have any laws or policy or procedures in place to stop us. So this, at this, the numbers that we have, which are horrific in and of themselves, I'm not downplaying them. Solve and it will be, however we solve this challenge, it could be a vaccine or a way to work or, or a way to communicate, whatever it may be, we will go back to doing what humans are in nature naturally inclined to do. So I don't think America handled it well. I don't think the world handled it well. And I don't think, and because of that, we are going to continue to see fires in places that I had projected two months ago Indonesia, Philippines, uh, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, continent of Africa, um, Brazil, Mexico, Ecuador, all these countries that are developing or third world, however you want to label them, have ghettos with 100,000, 200, 2.5 million people. So we're going to be living this, with this for a long time because we have, as a global society, made huge mistakes. I don't know if I answered your question, but I tried.
0: You did indeed, David Goldsmith, our guest today, international business consultant, the author, by the way, of "Paid to Think." That's "Paid to Think." You may want to pick that up. It's been compared to uh, Peter Drucker's books, and, and uh, boy, that's that's a pretty high cotton you're in there, um, David. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of talk out there right now about um, you know us, uh, you know, coming out of this in the United States, and many states have, are beginning to lift their restrictions as we do this podcast. Um, and the health and science professionals, many of them were saying, hold up, this is a little too fast. Um, and I wonder your thoughts on this either or concept. It's either you all have to, everyone has to stay inside and, and wait this thing out, or we destroy the economy. Is there a middle ground there? I mean, you work with CEOs and business people at a very high level all over the country, all over the world, and, and I'm sure these questions are being asked. So what do you think? Is it an either-or world, or is there a middle ground?
1: Uh, it, you asked about nine questions in that question. So let me ask you one question, uh, two questions. Do you have children? Do you have family? Yes, I do. Do you want your children and your family out there right now as the conditions exist in your environment?
0: I will tell you, I live in the Washington, D.C. metro, and uh, we are just now in a, a peak area, so absolutely not. Okay. That's that's a telltale sign. Would I,
1: if handled appropriately in the United States, would I wish that individuals and organizations would be able to go back to doing business? Absolutely. I'd like to see our lives turn back. Yet you have to live with the decisions that you made. You are where you are based upon the decisions that you've made. And let's use that as a countrywide specific thought. And if we were to take off the uh, compare us, the United States with 330 million to Europe, which is 400 and about 50 million, 420 to 50 million. I don't know the number right now, so it's not coming to me. It's almost as if we have states similar to countries in Europe. Italy could be, uh, northern Italy, it wasn't all of Italy, northern Italy could be compared to New York. Right. Uh, Washington could be considered what was happening in Switzerland. Uh, California could be France, maybe not as bad as France, but maybe more Spain. I don't know the exact figures to be able to compare them. If, in fact, the governance in the region in which you're in was handled in an appropriate way and tools are put in place as they are, for example, in Japan. My friends in Japan, I'm talking to every day, are going to work on a scheduled kind of on-off, the one-day-on, one-day-off type environment. And many of them are still working. So if, in fact, the governance was in place, I would say go back to work. Now, when we talk about an economic challenge, there's nobody who's going to be not impacted by what's going on. However, it's very easy to drop into this, oh me, oh my, let's blame, let's do. It's not that environment. There are people right now I'm talking to who are doing very well. Their businesses are digital. They have positioned themselves. They have automated factories with very few employees. There are individuals who are doing okay. There are people who are doing poorly. And the, in the Netherlands right now, the number of children calling into a hotline for abusive parents has skyrocketed. Wow. So getting people out of their homes and back into, the, into work, it would be uh, extremely valuable. I don't think in the United States that without a uniform, and I know there's federalism and I know the constitutional challenges, without a uniform, clearly defined, managed approach to bringing us back to work, we will see pockets of viral spreading and igniting flames all throughout the United States for as long as we can think of. I I do this when I think of COVID. I take the lines off the maps. There are no lines in the United States. COVID does not know a single line. It does not know that you're in Pennsylvania or New York. If you take the lines off, now all you see are opportunities for COVID. Coronavirus looks for a lot of habitats close together. That's why cities get hit first. So it's going to spread where anybody doesn't have some type of mitigation principles in place. And we're just terrible at that. And and I, I I want to toss something out. Sorry. It's the, the reaction is we've got to produce everything in the United States. Now that's, that's our role. The United States has to be the manufacturer of everything, never going to happen. And the reason, for example, to go into producing typical masks or to go into face shields is we typically don't need that many and they're low cost. The reason that Americans or Western world has not been in masks uh, to the degree is because it's not an easy business. It's a hands-on, labor-intensive, low-margin product. 3M has been involved in it, but they didn't sell billions and billions of them. So we have to be careful being reactionary too as a society. So I'm, I'm, I have plans and thoughts about how to approach this. And what I do with my clients is we, we sit down and say, I teach or show or demonstrate ways to think through this environment. And on my end, I'm, I didn't go to bed before three, I'm exhausted because not just because of clients, because opportunities are arising everywhere. And that just takes a different framework. Of my forecast is this will not be stopped until the middle of next year, where we have some semblance. I've said that from the very beginning. This is a 2021. It will continue because of these third these countries that I mentioned. So you're going to go to a conference in Berlin. Uh, I don't know. You see somebody and you might say, well, they're Indian. Well, they're not. Indian. They're Polish who lives in India, but they look Indian. How do you know what conference? How do you know if you're safe? So we're going to have to find new structures for a period of time until we formulate a new way of living. And it's not going to be easy, but my forecast is 2021. So therefore I have set my own standards. I'll be happy if it's shorter, be fantastic, but I've set my lifestyle up. I've set my, my systems in place to be able to handle a longer-term maturation of this virus.
0: Our guest on the Big Time Talker podcast, which is powered by Speaker Matches, David Goldsmith, with the Goldsmith Organization, uh, offices in USA and and Hong Kong. He's the president and co-founder of that, as well as Buzzed in San Diego and the Project Moon Hut Foundation in New York and San Francisco. <laughs> which I, I just love to say that I may say it over and over again. Well, hey. well because well, let me. Project Moon Hut, I have to say it because you brought it up and you said yes. it in the way.
1: Project Moon Hut is a six-year initiative. I started with, with NASA and we've been involved for six years. Yes. It is to establish a box of the roof and a door, a moon hut on the moon, NASA named it, to the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem, then to use that paradigm shift thinking and those innovations and that endeavor and turn it back on Earth to change how we live on Earth for all species that is the Project Moon Hut Foundation. So if you're going to really plug it, let's give it the plug. Uh, We we have volunteers all over the world
0: helping us. Well, I saw the folks in Hollywood uh, are way into the Project Moon Hut Foundation. So – that's pretty cool. You won some big hoity-toity Hollywood Producers Award for that. So. <laughs> the the uh, Global Visionary Disruptor Award. Thank you. Yes, I did. I,
1: I, I turned it down in the beginning when they created it for me. And uh, someone said, you have to take it because it helps the cause. And so, yes, I did because received
0: the award. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, one of the reasons we wanted to talk with you is – from you know precisely what you just talked about that as a global business person you have a a a bigger perspective than i think lots of us do uh who do business primarily in the united states now i like you have spent some time in asia and and spent some time in china and i'm used to seeing uh, folks wear masks there uh, from years ago that's not a normal thing here i wonder um as a guy who consults and and educates and works with CEOs about shifting that paradigm, where in your forecasting you don't see things changing until at least the middle of next year. What you tell folks, David, in industries that will have a really really tough time shifting. For example, we work with lots of entertainers, touring concert musicians. Yep. You know that industry uh, was one of the first to be hurt, and there's really no way of knowing how it's going to come out. Well, you know what do you tell those folks? As a way to shift their own business paradigm.
1: Okay, so let, let's do a, a narrative that you just followed because I think it's a it's a good one. You started off with talking about Asia and wearing masks. I did a video on this about a month month and a half ago, before this, so that people would understand the concept behind it. When SARS hit in the early two thousands, uh, not not uh, there wasn't a significant death figure. However, it impacted about twenty nine different countries in the Asia-Pacific region. And there is a relic of that. I talked earlier about what relics come from the Spanish flu. Well, there is a relic that came out uh, or a behavioral relic that came out of that in Asia, because the flu was so powerful, individuals wore masks not to protect themselves. But to protect others, it was a community decision that if you felt sick, you would put on a mask in the morning. And I remember one scenario. I was walking into an executive board meeting or an executive committee meeting, and the CEO looked at me and said, and I don't know why, maybe my eyes, maybe I sniffled. I don't know. He said, oh, David, do you need a mask? And I said, sure. I was uncomfortable. It was hot. I had to sit in the meeting with a mask, but I wore it for them, not for me. And I wondered – I always wonder in – in Asia, when an expat does not wear a mask and they typically don't, how the Asians felt because it was a self-serving, it was selfish if you didn't wear it and you were sick. So that relic translates. So that's one, what behaviors or changes have to be made in order to be able to survive a condition? Well, today, I'll use the United States and moving forward, what do you tell these people, these companies, these organizations? It's, I'm going to say it's going to be a rough ride. There will be, in the United States alone, probably 100,000 companies that will close. They will not be able to survive. It. Then again, there will be, not government related, but companies or banks, institutions will have to say, do I want to lose you as a customer and have you go out of business and never pay me? Or can we make new uh, changes in our laws and our configurations? Now, the, the challenges in the United States. There is a belief that Americans this is a capitalistic society. That is not absolutely correct. Capitalism is where the country and everybody uses their own money to drive the business, their businesses. A capitalist is an individual who puts money into something at their own risk. So Burke, you have the Allen Media Company, you are a capitalist. The people who work for you work for a capitalist. But they're not capitalists the same, in the same uh, tonality, the same uh, equivalent terms. And in the United States, if you look up the Kaufman Foundation, they've done research that the United States has lost its entrepreneurial uh, vein of business development at an unbelievably rapid pace over the past 40 years. I mean it, it's, it's so significant that you, if you were going sleigh riding you would, or going skiing, you would love to be on this slope because it goes down. Post uh, – uh, so before I finish that thought, if you look around the world, you can live under authoritarian regime or a communist regime or a socialist regime and still be a capitalist. I would say the individuals, whether you like the quality of the N95 masks or you've been screwed over, China has a tremendous amount of capitalists. They're capitalists. i worked with companies in Moscow and, and St. Petersburg. I've helped them sell and do and buy and be sold out. Well, they're capitalists. They're individuals who put money in for a return on their investment. What I hope happens in the United States, and this comes down to policy, and I don't think – sorry to say I don't think this administration understands this, that what has to happen is an ignition of the entrepreneurial spirit Through policy that allows the formation of easy to create businesses in areas that are beneficial long term to the future of the planet, to the individual, to society and however you want uh, to uh, position that. That does not mean in my interpretation that all of these consultants and there will be hundreds of thousands of consultants after this pandemic. There are people who lost their job, decided to go on to start their business, but they're actually not consultants nor speakers. What they are are people who are looking for a job and doing something in the meantime. And once a solid job comes up, they'll take it. It happened after 2000, the 2000.com. It happened after the Great Recession. It will happen again. It, I would suggest that you look at areas of concentration, which could be automation. So funding projects and include automation or... Funding projects that are involved in uh, uh, anything, artificial intelligence, uh, 3D printing, uh, ma- uh, seamless manufacturing t- uh, technologies, anything to do with uh, food processing and delivery, so it's cheaper, more efficient, uh, safer. So there are many areas, and I, I hate to use this term, but China has what's called the China Dream. They have, and they also have a map, a plan of the categories of businesses they would like to dominate. And what they've done is they fast track. They've given them incentives for capitalists. They've given them incentives, support uh, areas of focus that they can really know that they can move forward. in. I think in the United States, we could see, we should see post COVID or during COVID incentives and categories of development that can move, that can change translate. So to answer your question about events they're going to, they're going to be changed. They're going to have to deliver not any different than Napster and how the world changed once there was the peer to peer distribution of product, it will change. I think conferences will have to change and they they should be almost a reverse conference. You educate people online, offline. You have a series of events, kind of like a, what do you call it, uh, a, a tournament structure. You, you bring all the people together. You learn and you learn and you learn. And when you finally get to the conference, that's the culmination of learning, not the initiation of learning. And I think we can go into reverse learning environments where the conference is at the end but all the education, the learning, the growth happens in between beforehand. So we're just going to have to restructure. And we've lived through. I saw something the other day. Someone was born in 1900, lived through World War I, Spanish flu, Great Depression, World War II. Uh, World War II. They lived through many, many other conflicts where hundreds of millions of people died will human nature is resilient. I think that we'll come out of this, but it's not going to be an easy road.
0: One of the things that you're known for, David, is being that, uh, you know, I've never thought of it that way perspective that you bring to to all these CEOs and, and business leaders all over the world. And, and you're sharing some of that with us today. I've got time for one more question. And that is this, sure. is it is it uh, in 2020, in the wake of COVID-19, uh, a situation where you better be able to figure out how to essentially digitize your business or you're in great peril? I've, I've
1: wrestled with this. I would say no, no. Great. You are not going to be you have to digitize your business to survive, and you're not going to be in great peril. There, Throughout history, since the beginning of time, Humans needed food, water, shelter, transportation, communication, and entertainment. Since the beginning of time. The only thing that has happened differently, and this was taught to me by uh, Chris Roofer, who owns a fantastic company called Morningstar Packaging. Brilliant guy. The only thing that has changed is the technology we've applied to it. So I would guarantee you, and I will, I, I would I'm not a better. I don't go to I don't put money on casinos or horses or, or cards. I can guarantee you business leaders around the world are saying, how do I mitigate risk? Too many employees. So we're going to see a huge influx of automation. Absolutely. We're going to automate factories. We're going to automate um, banking through reconciliation. We're going to automate um, delivery of products. We're going to see hotels using technology to deliver services to individuals. However, this is the really amazing thing. Those are already happening all over the world. I mean, I in in Japan, if you are a senior in a senior home, you have already probably had a robot running your exercise classes. If you're in China, and I hate to use China because it's gotten such a bad rap. It's not the Chin, Chinese. It's the Chinese government that people have issues with. Chinese people are like American people, are like Russian people, are like German people. They have their challenges, good and bad and the ugly. And I could tell you there's a mix in between. So let's push that aside. These are governments that are making these decisions in many cases. And so I would – you could go to China. You don't even have to use currency. You use your phone. In Hong Kong, I never wrote a check. Not never. My, My accountant always wanted a check. Uh, not because he, he was from the Philippines. He had to pay two, three dollars to pay for the check mm-hmm. and he, uh, for wire transfer. And for him, he wanted to send the two to three dollars home. So he wanted a check and the check was cheaper. OK, got it. But I, owe, I, I wire transferred everything. I got on my laptop. I need to pay my bills. And I pulled up my account and I paid my bills. No stamps, no mailing, no nothing. So around the world, these things already exist. I think that to pull parts of the western world and we haven't really focused on africa today, uh, talked about africa much so to take europe and americas and we want to move to that western that that type of new digital i think there're going to be areas we're going to improve on but then again uh, you're still going to want your hairstylist to cut your hair. You're still going to want a, a bar a bartender across from you to talk to you. You're still going to want to have those experiences that have human interaction. So the challenge becomes, on a strategic level, is going back to what I said in the beginning was, what is your perception of the future? What is your And I and I ask individuals, executives all the time. What is your perception of the future? What do you think life will be like in one year, three years, five years, 10 years, depending on the environment, the company, the industry? What is it going to be like in 30 years? And you beat, they're so challenged. What, I mean, what is media going to be like in a year from now? And you should sit down with your team and you should say, let's draw out five different options and let's see what we know. And you're going to find, you don't know. So it's not that you don't know because you don't know. It's because you hadn't thought about it enough. So now you're going to say, well, what technologies are out in the world? What can we use? Then you have to say to yourself, okay, what are the principles we live by? For example, I'll give you a simple one. All people are nice. All people are mean. That uh, you believe that everybody has free will and everybody doesn't. You could have a principle that says I, uh, my business – is a business that needs to be automated. I believe in automation. We live by principles. If you stop at a stop sign, you have a principle that the government has the right to give you a stop sign. That's a principle. I will abide by laws. If you don't and you live in Bangladesh and I've worked a lot in Bangladesh, there are no stop signs. There are no traffic lights. They just go. It's amazingly dangerous. And then and so you have to figure what those are and As an organization, you need to ask yourself, what are our principles? What are our individual principles and our group principles? And then you have to take a real true hard current assessment of who you are, where you are, and say, how do I figure out how to build one of those forecasts? And all of that comes down to, you'll find that when you do this exercise, you end up determining what's your desired outcome. And your desired outcome is not a goal. It's not an ambition. The desired outcome is what are you trying to fulfill? And if you're 72 years old or 60 years old in COVID, you might say, my desired outcome is to lead my life in a simple way that the richest man is whose pleasures are the cheapest is the a poster I grew up with. But if you're 27 years old, you might say, my desired outcome is to raise a family and to have enough money to be able to or you might even say, I want to prove to my mother that I'm worthy of something. Desired outcomes come out of that. And then you make calculated decisions on what your future may be. And th- this is a time, the, the name of the book that I wrote, and I apologize for bringing it up because I can give somebody something. If you want, I can give them a chapter or two, send it to you, and you can distribute it. because I'm, I don't like to self-promote. In Paid to Think, The the reference to the book is that the number one role of people in decision making, the primary job is to think through ideas, concepts, look at data, uh, assess situations, and then determine the best possible optimized outcome to achieve your desired outcomes or the group's desired outcomes and to do it in a way that is productive for your life. And we don't spend enough time because there, uh, everybody has to move to execution. No, execution follows plans. So how do you create solid plans? And this, to me, COVID, the coronavirus situation, done right, for companies that are fairly opportunistic, this is an amazing time to work with your team. It's an amazing time to explore realities. And to, because you can't do anything, which is great. You can't go to execution, and to devise plans that can push you into being one of the winners in your life, not in the world or world, world domination. Project Moonshot would be that in your life, so that when you're done with this, you say it wasn't. You're not pointing fingers at the world. You took the bull by the horn. You took the time that was necessary. You helped your team. You helped your people. You helped your family. You helped your community. You helped the world. And you made decisions that moved everybody
0: forward. Love it. A healthy dose of optimism from a true glass-half-full guy and, uh, and a thinker. And I think that's, that's correct. We need to think through this. David Goldsmith, thank you for spending some time with us on the Big Time Talker podcast.
1: Uh, it was my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting
0: me. If you'd like to find out more about David, visit him online at davidgoldsmith.com. He is the president, co-founder, and chief bottle washer of the Goldsmith Organization in USA and Hong Kong and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff. He's a uh, a really good guy and a brilliant businessman, and he's helping us all get through this, and we appreciate him taking time to be on the show today. We thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our sponsor, Speaker Match, visit them online at speakermatch.com. The Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network here in Washington, D.C. Back tomorrow with more information, insight, and entertainment. I'm Burke Allen. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Bye, everybody.